Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Club Book with Ian Manuel. My name is Nadine Graves. I am your moderator tonight. I am a Minnesota native and also a podcast host of The Waiting Room with Nadine Graves. Before I introduce Ian properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to us tonight. Club Book is a program of MELSA, a metropolitan library service agency made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by the library strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. St. Paul Public Library is a co-organizer of, um, of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Ian Manuel. Ian Manuel is a name well known to legal and criminal justice reform advocates. Sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for a crime he committed at the age of 13. Manuel languished in prison for 26 years. Thanks to the coalition of supporters, including renowned activist, Brian Stevenson, and the woman injured by Manuel in 1990, Manuel received a fair sentencing from the Florida Court of Appeals in 2010. His story is told in part in Stevenson's number one New York um, best time seller, Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, as well as in the two time Pulitzer Prize winner, Nicholas Kristof's recent tightrope, Americans Reach for Hope. Manuel finally tells the story in his own words, In My Time Will Come, a memoir, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption, one of the most anticipated memoirs of 2021. It hit shelves just this week. In this memoir, the author candidly chronicles his turbulent childhood in Tampa, harrowing experiences in prison, including 18 years in solitary confinement and his continual search for self-improvement, atonement, and above all, justice. After a short presentation by our guests, we'll have a time for Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to ask your query in a bit more anonymously, you can send a private message 
to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Now to Ian. Welcome to Minnesota virtually, Ian. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Nadine. Thank you for such a warm uh, introduction. Thank you for having me as well, Minnesota. Looking back on it now, how how do you feel? How do you feel knowing that you spent so many years behind bars for something you did at such a young age? Um, I feel like a survivor um, because I wasn't supposed to make it. Um, but I also feel compelled to keep fighting because there's so many others that are left behind. And, and, and additionally, the law that placed me in that situation is still on the books. Uh, I, re I remember the law like the back of my hands. It's a, it's a Florida statute that says a child of any age that's indicted for a life or death felony shall be treated in every respect as if he were an adult. And so until that law has changed and there's a cap placed on the minimum age requirement to try a child as an adult, I will be continue fighting. Thank you. I think so many people um, come out of prison and just want to go on with their life. They don't want to have to think about any of it, uh, you know, put it back as far as can be. But you have gone in the trenches and continue to fight for those, for everybody who's left behind. What do you think causes you to want to continue to fight and expose what has happened to you? Well, uh, a few things. Number one, I spent double my life in expectancy in prison. So I went to prison when I was 13, but I did 26 years in prison. So mm -hmm. prison was pretty much all I knew. Mm -hmm. And by being powerless for so many years at the hands of my oppressors, I constantly used to dream of having power. And a lot of people might say, Ian, your time has come. You got a book now. You're, you're in the New York Times uh, with your own op-ed, the LA Times, you're on CNN. But th all those things are just stepping stones to obtaining power, to be in a position to actually make a lasting change, to uh, change the way kids uh, are placed in solitary confinement, to change the minimum age that a child can be tried as an adult. Those are, those are things that are still going on. And so I, I, I have a reason to continue to fight. And reading, um, I believe it was Christoph's book, he described you as being the poster child of neglect and speaks highly of other interventions that could have taken place that, to prevent the crime that happened in your case. Um, are, is there anything that you're doing now that advocates for some of those interventions, such as, I think you mentioned Boys and Girls Club or YMCA in your book? Right. Well, I, I go to different universities and nonprofit organizations sharing my story. I think I can be that beacon of hope and that light that the system got it wrong mm -hmm. uh, because I was condemned to die as being incorrigible, that I was not fit to ever work, walk in society again. You know, so, so the judges got it wrong with me. And if they got it wrong with me, it's thousands of other kids that they got it wrong too. You can't judge someone at the onset of their life when they're still a baby and developing and say that they are, are no longer fit to be in society. So yeah. Right. How, what do you think um, was the turning point for you to make you, some might say you're an anomaly, 
Um, but I think you are the story of many people that are incarcerated because I've, you know, developed relationships with individuals who come out and it's like, man, you see the untapped potential that are, are behind bars. So what, it, what was it for you that was that transformational pivotal moment or has this something that's always been in you and just needed to mature? Well, it's a couple of things, you know, uh, I've always had, I've always felt different. I've always felt different ever since I was a, a little kid, but uh, sitting in solitary confinement, man, for 18 consecutive years from age 15 to age 33, from the time George H.W. Bush was president mm -hmm. to the time Barack Obama was president, you're, you're left alone with your thoughts for a lot of, a, a long period of time. And I would talk to God, man. I would walk in that cell back and forth and I talked to God. I had conversations with God about just give me one more chance in society, man. And I promise I won't let you down. And I turned to poetry. I became my own therapist. You know, mm -hmm. it was poetry that helped sustain me. I dived within the depths of my imagination to, to, to survive. I like to tell people that imagine a fish, a fish underwater, uh, you know, what even a fish has to come up for that one little quick breath of oxygen you know, and then go dive back down again. Well, imagine oxygen as reality and the people that dive within the depths of their imagination that never came up for that oxygen, that little breath of reality, those people developed schizophrenia and, mm -hmm. and they went crazy in solitary confinement. You know, so it was my poetry. If you just want to, you know, bring up one thing and my faith in God that I, that I had more to offer the world and that I didn't kill anybody. So I believe that I wouldn't die in prison. Hmm. When you mentioned the poetry, how did you start writing poems? That's a great question. Uh, someone sent me Tupac Shakur's book, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And um, I started by rewriting, challenging myself to rewrite Tupac's poems. Then I'd share them with my fellow prisoners and I loved their reaction. So then I, I graduated to started writing uh, a, a little more difficult poetry, Langston Hughes, Maya, Maya Angelou. Uh, uh, I started rewriting um, Eminem. I challenged myself. I'd say, Ian, if you can't rewrite Eminem's poems, if you can't rewrite uh, some of these the greats, then you don't have what it takes to be successful. And that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. But when you don't have nothing but time and you're, you're able to block out any distractions because you're in the quietness of a cell, I was able to dive within the depths of my creativity, man, and come up with some pretty amazing uh, work. Right. And they're featured in the book. I have a few that are my favorite so far. So I hope before we're done here, you'll share some with us. Yeah, just just tell me which ones you like and I'll, I'll read them, you know, or I'll just uh, I'll share what's in the book. Okay. Um, well, since we're talking on poems right now, t can you read to me your favorite poem that's in the book? Uh, I'll read my favorite poem that's in the book because it's by my grandmother. Uh, okay. uh, and it says it's called Linda's Love. I want a woman that can hold me like the little boy I am, the one incarcerated as a kid and forced to be a man, a lady that will cradle me arms around my head as I cry for the little boy, the world just left for dead. I want to be loved for who I am, particularly the darkness of my skin because I've been abused and ridiculed for something I had no choice in being. I want a woman to be that something I haven't had since Grandma Linda, to be my partner 
and my pillow, a place I can just surrender. Someone who treats me special, like grandma did when I was a kid. Someone I can trust, take off the mask, relax and just be in. Maybe I'm just a dreamer asking for the impossible. Someone to love me devoutly, a woman like Linda Johnson. And your grandmother raised you, right? Yeah, her and my mother. I, I, I split time between her and my mother, but it was my grandmother that gave me that unconditional love that showed me what it felt like to be loved without conditions. And mm -hmm. so when I think of uh, the woman in my life, I, I would like for her to be like Grandma Linda. <laughs> and uh, your mother, what was the relationship with, like, with your mother before you got incarcerated? It was to mutualist. It was, uh, it was uh, I love my mother. She loved me in her own special way, but it was uh, abusive. It was, uh, I, I didn't, I thought it was normal for the way she talked to me. You know, uh, she'd curse at me. She'd, she'd say that they, that they gave her the wrong baby uh, in the delivery room. Uh, she'd compare me to other children saying that this child was uh, cuter than me. She tell me that um, uh, she didn't like the darkness of my skin, which caused me to take bleach baths uh, mm. to try to create a child that my mother would be proud of and love. But she also instilled in me some things as, as, as abusive as that language was, she also instilled some things into me. She taught me the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. She wouldn't let me go to the Boys and Girls Club one day until I learned the Lord's Prayer uh, word for word. Uh, she said, one thing to me that I always caught, caught, recalled when I was in solitary confinement, she said, Ian, no matter what, don't never let them take your mind. Mm -hmm. And I used to recall that statement when I was in solitary. I'm like, why did she tell me this? Who did she, this was before I went to prison. She would tell me this as a little kid. Mm -hmm. Like who did she think was going to try to take my mind? But I'm glad she said it because those words, they grew on me and they mm -hmm. helped me fight and to keep my sanity during that time in solitary. And you had, you have another sibling that you grew up with, right? Yes, Sean, my brother, Sean. Okay. And, and then there was an, there was an incident with you and your brother. And so there's a lot of things that you experienced growing up that you share in this book. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I talk, I, I delve into it. Uh, you know, I vaguely remember it because the, the mind has a defense mechanism that will block things out that are too painful to remember. All right. But then there was some point, once you're there, you're incarcerated, these family members have reached out to you and trying to form some sort of relationship with you, right? Like my dad. Yeah, my dad, uh, I was surprised uh, because he wasn't there and didn't raise me as a, as, a, as a child. So when I got this letter in the mail and I turned the letter over and it says Jimmy Reese, I, was, I nearly dropped the letter because I was so shocked. I had been in prison at that time. I got that letter in like, 1998. I had been in prison eight years at that time and had never heard a word from my dad. But mm -hmm. I remember the letter. He, he was like, baby, I know your mom's dead now, but I want to let you know that I'm here for you, man, and to do whatever I can to reconcile our relationship. He had somebody write the letter for him, something I, I can never quite understand. Reading and writing has always been a strong suit of mine, but my dad couldn't read and write. My mm -hmm. grandmother couldn't read and write. So I, I guess it, uh, we're from different times. My grandma grew up picking cotton in the cotton fields of Georgia. 
uh, and education wasn't high on her, their, their, her list, but I've never been able to understand how I'm so good at something that the, my two family members just can't do. Right. And then unfortunately, because of your incarceration, you lost ties with all of those people as far as they passed, every, everybody in your family passed away while you served this 26 years. Yes, everybody died while I was in, either they died, all my immediate family died, and then the family that didn't die, like my uncles and aunts, they uh, left me for dead. So mm -hmm. it was like they were dead to me. You know, a lot of people had washed their hands and they thought I was never coming home. They thought what the judge said was a finality, you know, but uh, God had different plans because he felt like I was a life worth preserving, that I had something to offer the world. Right. And one person in particular that felt like you had something to offer was Debbie, correct? Yes, Debbie, uh, my, my special friend, Debbie Bagley, man. Uh, you know, I reached out to Debbie in Christmas of 1991 when I was 14 years old. And I went out and I, you know, back then you could press zero and just get a collect call to her with the operator. I don't know if that exists nowadays, but I uh, went out there and I, 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 I placed the collect call to her. And uh, I'll never forget when the operator asked her, you have a collect call from, from Ian, do you accept? She said, can you ask him his last name? Hmm. And I said, manual. And then we had a 15 minute conversation. I just remember the beginning of the conversation. I said, Debbie, I like to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and to apologize for shooting you, you in the face. And she said, she asked me a question that no 14 year old should ever have to answer. She said, Ian, why did you shoot me? And I would just remember saying it all happened so fast. And um, uh, the 15 minutes was up and then she asked, I asked her, could I call back? She said, yes. And then when those 15 minutes was almost up, I said, Debbie, can I write you? And she said, yes. And I think this is a great time for us to show the audience, the video of me and Debbie uh, together if all uh, the tech people don't mind showing it, keying it up. I had built up a reputation in the neighborhood as someone who was fearless. Matter that I was the youngest, uh, I was given a gun. My daughters were three and one, and it was the first time I had been out, really, since I had my second baby. I see these three guys walk up to the car, and I wasn't really paying attention to them. One of them asked, you got any change? I heard from behind, I'm serious, give it up. And Debbie immediately screamed, immediately fired. He shot. I saw one of my teeth fall on the ground. I threw the gun in some bushes. My front tooth was gone. All the teeth on the, on the bottom left side, all of them were gone. Then I found out who it was. They said, Ian Manuel, 13. I'm like, 13? There's no way a 13-year-old kid shot me. He's just a child. My lawyer at the time, he goes and gets my mom, talks to my mom for about 15 minutes. My mom's older than me. My mom has been in prison before. She's dealt with the criminal justice system before. And she tells me, Ian, do what your lawyer say, baby. Do it for me, please, plead guilty for me. I said, okay, mom. A grave regretting that, man. 
because I ended up being sentenced to life. I've been in prison about a year at this time. It was around December 1991. I had all my paperwork scattered out on the table. Police report was in there with Debbie's phone number. So I got the idea, let me call Debbie. I got a phone call, and it was a collect call. You have a collect call from Ian at Appalachian Correctional Institution. Will you accept the charges? Morbid curiosity, more than anything, I said, I'll accept the charges. The first thing I say was, Ms. Bagri, I, I, I called to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and to apologize, you know, for shooting you in the, in the face. He said he was sorry for what he did, and if it wouldn't be too much trouble, I would like to write you. She said yes. And that's how our correspondence started. I was getting letters from him from the time he was 14, and I'm reading them, and I'm thinking, way his, his sentence structure, his vocabulary, he is way too young to be this articulate. I'm glad I had followed my heart and picked up that phone that day, because if not, I would have missed out on a, a truly special friendship. I forgave him because he was a child. I used this to make my life better. I refocused. Ian had been sentenced to life without parole for a crime at the age of 13. I wrote him a letter. We're thinking about challenging the constitutionality of life without parole sentences for children. We started taking cases to the U.S. Supreme Court. When the court ruled that it is unconstitutional to impose these kinds of sentences on children convicted of non-homicides, we went back to the court where Ian's case was pending. We said, you have to give him relief. And Debbie came to court, and she said these amazing things about how she doesn't believe that the sentence that Ian received was fair or just, and she supports him being released from jail or prison. Ian got up and made such a beautiful speech to the judge. I told the judge, me and Debbie have been waiting for years for the judicial system to catch up to my remorse and her forgiveness. I was released that night. step out into the world, particularly now when you're coming out as an adult, but you left the world as a child, you look like an adult, but you have none of the life experiences that adults are supposed to have. Ian had never lived alone before. He's never uh, rented anything. He's never had a bank account. He's never learned to drive. He doesn't know any of the things that people assume he knows. You said, put your foot on the brake and then press this? Mm -hmm. But having some outside people who are cheering for him, rooting for him, it's obviously made a huge impact. Just press that, I guess. And nobody has played that role more enthusiastically, more lovingly, and uh, with more commitment than Debbie. Hello again. <laughs> I, I see Ian for who he is. He still has a lot of growing to do. And I don't glorify him, but our relationship, it's it spans so many years from childhood to adulthood that he's almost like 
my child. You can just put it in like a, a pan and, and stir fry it. With you don't overcome fear and anger without courage. You don't affirm the other things people are when they make mistakes or when terrible things happen to them without courage. I'm not saying he wasn't responsible for his actions, but when you're 13, you should be given <laughs> the opportunity to change, to grow. What I feel is compassion for another human being. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's remarkable. Um, Debbie is a remarkable human being um, to forgive what some would say is the unforgivable right. and um, have that compassion for you. And because of that, we are here today um, able to, you know, relish in this amazing memoir. Thank you. Um, so thank you for reaching out. Thank you for um, you know, humbling yourself and showing that remorse to her. Um, I know you and I talked briefly and you mentioned that while you were incarcerated, you were there when many people were executed. And oftentimes you would hear family members say, this is what my loved one would, would have wanted. And you feel that that's what people might've said if Debbie had died. Exactly. What, what, what do you want the audience here to know about that? That yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, yeah, I mean, I was at Florida State Prison doing several executions. They would always feed us early. Uh, like dinner is usually served around six or seven o'clock. But when there was an execution at the prison, they would feed us around three o'clock. And then they dim all the lights in the building. And they wouldn't turn the lights back on until the execution was complete. And then invariably, I would always turn on my, I would always turn on the small transistor AM FM radio that I wasn't supposed to have that someone had snuck to me. And I would listen to the victim's family. And it was always the same tune. This is what my mother, this is what my brother, my sister, my aunt, my dad would have wanted. Justice has been served. And I used to always thank God that Debbie didn't die because Debbie's husband hated my guts. He hated that I developed a relationship with his wife. And I know if he, if Debbie would have died, he would have been one of those people saying, yes, justice has been served. He deserves to die in prison. And this is what the prosecutors and the judges would have had to go on. But thank God Debbie survived to speak for herself. And you can okay. see what she wanted. She wanted Ian free. Okay. And she believed in re your redemption. She believed that you were just a child yes. and she believed in humanity. Yes. Um, unfortunately, while you were there, it seemed like so many others didn't. And you spent um, too many years in, in solitary confinement. And during that time, you experienced horrific things. Yes, I did. I, uh, I was gassed with high powered chemical agents. I was stripped and left naked in a cell for weeks at a time. I was injected with psychotropic meds when I didn't need uh, any psychotropic meds uh, injected into my body. I was uh, I was beaten uh, by a correctional officer. I, I I I had my head used as a battering ram to open open steel doors. Uh, I was slammed face first into the concrete. I could, but most of all, I just was well, I was just not treated with humanity. You know, you don't treat human beings like that. And I mean. 
what I experienced, I've seen people lose their lives, you know, by the grace of God. I tell people all the time, and since we're talking about, and I'm in Minnesota, I have to say this. If what happened to George Floyd happened in broad daylight with cameras, imagine what's going on behind those closed walls with no one's filming the atrocities that's happening to my brothers and sisters that are incarcerated. And some people might say, well, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Doing the, doing the time does not mean that you are required to be beaten and treated inhumanely. I thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Um, because reading your experiences incarcerated in solitary confinement, you acting out as just any other adolescent would do um, in very um, cruel environment, um, and the way that you were treated gave me a visceral response. Like I literally was sick to my stomach. And as I was reading your book, I happened to be in Tampa at the time. So I'm in, the, in your neighborhood and I purposely am going around the places to just get a feel of what it was like growing up there. Wow. And so I, I, I think I've messaged you and I just, it's a, it's a miracle. I think Brian Stevenson called you magical. Like it's truly remarkable that you were able to rise out of that circumstance and be able to be here with us today. It's such an improbable journey, man. Like people, I don't think people understand how improbable the US Supreme Court overturning all juvenile life sentences. And then on top of that, the state of Florida said the US Supreme Court decision didn't apply to me. Mm -hmm. And then appealed all the way back to the US Supreme Court to try to get my life sentence reinstated. Thank God the U.S. Supreme Court did not grant them certiorari. And um, I was taken back to court thinking I was going home, and I didn't. I, I went back to court, and the judge said something before he went in his chambers to deliberate that let me know I wasn't going home that day. He said, Mr. Manuel, the, in 1990, the legislative intent was to punish, not rehabilitate. So when he said that I knew I wasn't going home that day, he came back out, and he he nullified my life sentences and in place, he, he resentenced me to 65 years, followed by 10 years probation and two years community control. And I went back to prison and I, I just didn't want to give up on myself. And despite what I was feeling inside, I, I channeled that, that anger and that frustration into a poem that I like to share with you guys called, My Time Gonna Come. It says, I promise you, the brunt of my oppression has a purpose. And this same person that you persecute will one day be worshiped. Though I stand before you bare chested and shirtless with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion and hurting, my time gonna come. Despite the difficulties and disappointments, my determination remains undaunted. Though the waters of my tomorrows are deep and uncharted, the buoyance of my character will float unwavering towards them. Like a song written yet unrecorded, my time gonna come. Though you wrap me in chains, and sprayed me with chemical flames and did all of the things you did to add to my pain. My circumstances will change 
I believe this with the depths of my being that as long as this world continues to spin, it cannot end until it's been enjoyed by end. Remember this day, because things won't always be this way. My time gonna come. My time gonna come against all conceivable odds. My time will come. That's powerful and your, your time has come. So I, I, I can't, you know, thank you enough or thank God enough for yes. um, just keeping that hope because there's so many that are behind bars and they can lose hope. Um, they lose faith. I can't imagine once they told you that you were going back for 65 years that you didn't just lose hope then. Right. Um, but thankful because of EJI and, and, and just I'm a fangirl a little bit. How was it meeting Brian Stevenson? Uh, Brian came to, uh, to my prison to meet me, man, when I was still incarcerated. I, that, that wasn't the most impressive thing because I didn't know who Brian was at the time. You okay. know, I didn't know he was our modern day Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. But when he wrote me and said he was so moved by my poetry mm -hmm. that he wanted to include one of my poems in his book, Just Mercy. He said, Ian, I like, I like to get your permission to include your poem, Uncried Tears, in my book. I think this book will get read by a lot of people, which was an understatement. Um, and I want to expose your talent to the world, man, because you write so beautifully. I, I gave him permission and, and people were blown away. I, I got letters from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand. People wrote to me uh, uh, in Glasgow, places I've never heard of, to try to connect with me, saying how moved they were by that poem. And so now to have my own book, with my own poetry in my book, man, it's, it's, it's just a miracle. And, mm -hmm. and I'm forever thankful to that man. I owe him my life. What would you say um, that you credit for finding your voice to be able to share your poetry? Um, I would have to credit it to solitary confinement because, mm -hmm. but God, God, you know, sometimes they say man will do something to hurt you, but God meant it for good, yeah. right? Yep. And so solitary confinement in a way, as bad as it was, it, it protected me from the horrors of overpopulation as a child growing up in solitary confinement. And it also helped me dive within the depths of my, listen, man, like Buddhist monks go into those caves for, for years and years and seek enlightenment. Mm -hmm. By me being in solitary confinement, separated from the distractions and the, and the things that go on in open population, I couldn't, I, I had no, no choice but to turn inward. And that's where your strength is, inside. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, it was solitary confinement, man, that I credit for helping me find my voice. What would you propose as a, a different alternative for people who are incarcerated, um, but want, needing that same outlet to be able to find their voice? What would you recommend? That so I, I would recommend the same thing I recommend to people in the audience. I say God gives each and every one of us a gift. And your gift is the thing you do the best with the least amount of effort. I just happen to write flawlessly sometimes. I can channel my emotions and put it on paper, but give me some numbers and my brain shut down. I'm, I, I'm horrible at math. 
You got people that are good at uh, uh, communicating. You got people that are good at, uh, I got a girlfriend that's good at baking a cake. She bakes cakes like an artist. So I would just, I would, I would ask people to tap into that thing that they do the best with the least amount of effort. Not just people in prison, but people in the audience as well. Right. right. Um, how was the publishing journey like? Were you, were you able to find a, was it hard finding a publisher? What was your, the process? Um, you know, I had some publisher that, publishers that was interested in my story. Um, and people, it was, uh, it was, it came down to two, two different publishing houses. And I decided to go with a uh, penguin random house because they seemed like they really wanted to walk me through the publishing process. Mm -hmm. Like they wanted to nurture me like a little child. And like, we, we have your best interest at heart. We're going to market this book and we're going to do it the best way we know how. Like it felt more family oriented at Penguin Random House, particularly uh, my my publisher, uh, Pantheon, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I ended up signing with them. But the, the process was difficult, man. Like initially I had to go through uh, a couple uh, uh, collaborators to help me write the book proposal. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the person I settled on, uh, you know, she didn't quite capture my voice. Uh, she was she, like, I wanted her to. And so I ended up going with another collaborator. So it was a, like, a, usually a book proposal only takes three weeks to put together, three weeks to a month. My book proposal took a year, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So uh, it was a long process, but I'm just thankful that I stuck with it. And now I have a published book to, to show for it. Okay. I have a question. When you got out, um what type of services or resources were available to you? Was EJI providing any resources? Was that through um, Debbie? What was going on to help you get on your feet? So uh, EJI has a reentry program. Mm -hmm. um, and I went there uh, for the first 10 months of my release. Um, and the reentry program was just, they take care of your housing, which was needed because I didn't have anywhere to stay. Uh, they, they teach you how to open a bank account. They just teach you, it's, it's like a rebirthing process. They teach you how to re-enter the world and, and, and you go through this program teaching you how to budget. Uh, they have lawyers coming over uh, at least three times a week teaching you how to cook uh, or trying to teach you how to cook because I still don't know how to cook. Uh, they have lawyers teaching you driver's lessons and I wish I would have stayed in Alabama a little longer so I could really learn how to drive. But I moved to New York 10 months out and um you don't need a car in New York, you know? Right, right. Um, but it's learning to drive is something I would love to do, Learn, love to learn how to do. Um, so I, that's still high on my list. But okay. EJI, if it wouldn't have been for EJI's reentry program, I would have been totally lost in society. I thought I was ready for it, mm. but you, it's like a whole, it's like being born again, man, and learning to crawl. Like when I was crossing the street, uh, I was scared at cars coming at me. But let me take you back to the, 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 the initial release. When mm -hmm. I was released that night on November 10th, 2016, I was, I was full of joy. Just imagine leaving a burning building and getting out mm -hmm. alive. Mm -hmm. you know, imagine getting out of a burning building and you escape with your life, man, and you just, Thank you, God. And that's what it felt like, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And um, th- and right after that, I went in, to meet Debbie in a parking lot, I mean, in a, a gas station, and I hugged and I kissed Debbie on both sides of her cheek. Uh, not, And this is something I dreamed of in solitary confinement, so I know dreams come true. I said, if I ever got an opportunity, since I didn't know which side of her face that I shot on, if I ever got the chance, I was going to kiss that lady on both sides of her cheek. And I did that. Now, she's an angel for allowing me to do that. And, and, and I'm just... I know dreams come true, man, and I'm forever thankful that I got a second chance at life. Yeah. Is there something you wish people would ask more about um, that they don't? Um, I think one of the things people don't ask me is more about, you know, The, the, the ways prison crushes people, right? Like how, how do you keep from being crushed? Like what do you do because you say you think like anomaly, I'm an anomaly in one sense, but I've seen people broken, man. So how, do, how did I survive the, 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 the system breaking me? And, not, and why am I not angry at the system? You know, and so the answer to that is um, I can uh, I can credit Debbie with me forgiving those people for what they did to me. If she could forgive me for shooting her in the face, I could forgive the correctional officer that didn't feed me, the correctional officer that gassed me, the correctional officer that wrote me false DRs that kept me in solitary month after month, year after year. That's huge. Um, It's clear that you've become a champion um for justice and other people that are similar that have been similarly situated as yourself are there any other specific cases that you want to share amplify for the audience to know about as far as juveniles yeah the evan miller case evan miller is the one that's fresh on my mind he opened the door for juveniles who were sentenced to death in prison for homicide crimes and people are people are often uh are being released yet two weeks ago or a week ago he finally after three to four years of waiting to be resentenced the judge in his case resentenced him to life without the possibility of parole Mm. and that was that's so crushing man because this guy evan miller who my lawyer brian stevenson represents has opened the door for other people to get out, have been released. And yet this judge in Alabama and the victim's family again said, yes, justice has been served. This is what my dad or my uh, would have wanted. And that that is what planted that seed and re- reminded me of all the things that people used to say every time a person was executed. No, justice has not been served. That kid, this guy opened the door for thousands of people of juveniles to be released, and yet you resentence him to life without a possibility of parole, saying that his life sentence is is justified. I I don't appreciate that, man. It it hurts me. It pains me to see Evan still stuck in in prison. And I hope Brian appeals his case back to the U.S. Supreme Court, even though with the conservative justice that's up there right now, winning a case now is is very hard. So we got to fight and get legislators to overturn 
uh, the way that the system is ran, particularly in Alabama, Florida, and Texas, these conservative mm-hmm. states. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's huge for, especially right now, there's a lot of pushback on um, voter rights and you yeah. know restoring people's ability to vote. So I think, yeah, I thank you for sharing that. Um, there's a couple questions coming in from the audience, so I'll pivot a little bit. Um, one question is, what is your writing practice like, and how often are you writing, and are you working on anything new now? Um, um, I hope my next book is a poetry book. Um, I really have a love for poetry. Um, I have a, at least 200 poems that didn't make the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I want to you know, work on a poetry book next. Um, and my writing process, to be honest with you, I use, if you if you look at the LA Times article that came out early in the week, the, the journalist got it right. I use my writing as a survival tool for so long that it's difficult to tap into it out here with all of the distractions. Because mm-hmm. now I don't have the luxury of just a quiet space to block the world out. I have to worry about work, work 24 seven. I have to work about my next book, book event. Well, before the book was done, I had to worry about getting the book done. So my writing process is is in shambles, to be honest with you. (laughs) How often do you communicate with Debbie and now? And then when you were writing your manuscript, were you sharing things with her before they were published? Um, I communicate with Debbie, uh, like when it's her birthday, she just had her birthday is like, Two weeks after mine, my birthday's March 29th, her birthday's April 7th, we're both Aries. So I communicate with her on special occasions or just to check in on her. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll be sending her a happy Mother's Day, I think this Sunday. Uh, we, we check in on each other uh, for special occasions uh, and whatnot. Um, and no, I didn't really check in with her for uh, the, the book process, you know? Uh, Debbie is, it's my friend, but she has her own life and I have mine. So and sh- so I didn't check in her with the writing process as often as uh, people might expect because it's my memoir, you know? It, it wasn't like a, a two-person deal. Mm-hmm. But she's already, like, you guys have done videos together. You She shared the story, so it wasn't yeah. any new or surprise to her. No, no, not okay. at all. Well, who would you say are some of your favorite authors? Uh, Gary Zukav. Uh, Malcolm X, uh, Eckhart Tolle. I, I read a lot of spiritual self-help books in solitary confinement. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert Greene, The 48 Laws of Power Guy. Uh, um, and uh, who else do I got up here? Uh, <laughs> uh, just to name a few. Okay, you mentioned rap lyrics and, and, and Eminem. Who would be your favorite artist? Oh, Tupac. Tupac, okay. hands down. Tupac, followed by Eminem, uh, Jay-Z. Uh, I'm a lyricist, man. You you have to move me with lyrics, man, for me to feel you, or I'm not gonna, I'm gonna turn you off. Right, lyrics matter. Yes. Um, have you always had a strong, have you always had such a strong faith? I was you raised- mentioned your, Yeah, you mentioned your mom. It started yeah. instilling the prayers. I was raised, my, my, my mom and my grandmother. My grandma made sure I went to Sunday school and. So I've always had a strong sense of faith. And sometimes what I think I, I learned in prison, though, I don't know how I do it, but you can manifest things. You can will things into existence. 
you could just believe something so much and just unconsciously bring it into existence. And I think that's what I did, man, to earn my freedom because there's no way I was in a situation. See, God will put you in a situation where you can't free yourself and it, you only have to lean on him. And that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it doesn't, it just does. It defies logic. It's it's, you can't make it make sense. Like it's something greater than you that obviously got you to where you're at. Uh, I see another question that says, how has it gone promoting the book during the pandemic? Are you looking forward to visiting bookstores? And yeah, I'm looking forward to visiting stores and bookstores. It's, it's, it's a little different doing it. Um, uh, uh, online, you you can't see your audience. I'm a I'm an artist, so I like to feel my the audience response. I love to see their their faces when I'm speaking to them, and and being able to share my story and then to touch people, to hug them, and sign their books for them. So I'm 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 really looking forward to getting into bookstores and libraries. Okay. Is, is, is there another poem you would like to share? I know you, there was one that I told you was my favorite, Buying Time. So right. if you could please share that with us. Yeah, I don't know Buying Time by heart, so I'll look for it. Okay. <laughs> I definitely will share it though. Thank you. And then while you're looking for that, there's another question. Do you have any continued involvement with the work of EJI and advocating for others? Um, so yeah, what I do is when I, um, I communicate with like 20, 30, 40 prisoners and anytime a prisoner sends me something that I, I can't handle, I'll, I'll send it straight to Brian, uh, mm -hmm. personally, you know, because EJI gets thousands and thousands of requests. So, uh, Brian may not never see the response from, uh, uh or, the, or the letter from this person. So yes, I, I, I constantly go to EJI when there's a, a legal question or someone I'm trying to help personally, you know? Okay. Where's buying time? Okay, here's buying time. Okay. And to preface this poem, buying time is about the loss of loved ones. It says, if I could buy time, I pay for the past, reach into the glass and pick memories out of the sand. I'd spend money on moments. I was interacting and laughing, subtract loneliness and sadness, then add up the balance. I'd watch how I spend it because time is precious. Be very selective and by times I was happy if time could be purchased, I'd bring back my family, roll back all of the hearses, and open their caskets. I'd alter results because I know what would happen and would feel it's my fault if I just sit back and let it. I'd break a bill and ask for the change. So this time, things wouldn't turn out the same. If time could be, if I could buy time, I'd pay for some smiles, recreate all of the days they've destroyed as a child. If time could be bought, I purchase moments I lost, every tick tock on the clock, no matter how much it costs, if I could buy time. Mm 
Thank you. Thank you. Or we're winding up. I'll I'll end with one last question. What is what is one thing that you would love for the audience to take away from your story? Oh, that's easy. That the I have a mantra, and the mantra is the impossible is obtainable. And it, I think I'm the full embodiment of that phrase. Believe in things unseen, will things into existence, man. And God is real. I don't know what your faith is. Uh, God is real, man. And the impossible is obtainable. Believe it. I'm an embodiment of it. Embodiment of it. Yeah, you definitely represent the the power and the will of the human spirit. Thank you for saying that, Nadine. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Just to end, uh, I would thank you for that for this wonderful evening. Thank you again, Ian, for penciling us into your busy May. Thank you again, everyone, and have a great night. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Ian Manuel. And that'll wrap up our spring 2021 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in August as we announce our fall 2021 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes. So if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past 15 seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free club book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make club book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in club book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.